same desperate dependence that we needed to trust in Christ for our salvation is the exact same desperate dependence we need day by day for our growth. So as we look through these verses, we're going to be reminded to keep doing the same. Uh, Paul, if I could flick over to... Okay. Keep doing the same in verses 6 to 8. You have everything you need in 9 to 12. What's going to avoid the warranty? And then just reflect upon how is all of that going. Keep doing the same. I think it's fair to say that verses 6 and 7 well and truly could be a sermon in and of itself. It's a passage I need to hear daily. It's probably a passage that all of us need to hear daily. In verse 6 he says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So Paul says, Therefore, in other words, in light of everything that he has said beforehand, these instructions are going to say how you should respond in light of what he said before. Now Paul has been talking about how he labours and toils that he might present everyone to Christ and everyone mature in Christ. He wants them to, to continue to stand firm in the gospel that they might be faithful to the end. Despite all of the temptations that they may be facing to, to point them and lead them away from Jesus, that they would be able to stand firm, to continue to hold firm and stand faithfully in Jesus Christ. But the command in that sentence is that last bit. Walk in him. Or if you've got some translations, say live in him. Literally, the word is there, the word for walk. It means in your normal, everyday goings about of how you get around in life. And it's in a present continuous sense. In every single moment of your life, in every single thing that you do, do it in him. That is, our whole life is to be lived in reference to Christ and in dependence upon Christ. Now that verse doesn't just say, therefore walk in him. It says, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord... So, or in this manner, or in this way, walk or live in him. So the way that he wants us to live in him is the same way that we came to trust in Jesus as Lord. I need to hear this every day. And the reason why I need to hear it every day is it forces me to think about how did I receive Christ as Lord? And then compare that against how am I trusting in Christ as Lord on a daily basis? Now, for some people in the room, salvation might be a, a recent event that they can recall and remember how it was and how it wasn't that far ago. Others kind of look back a little bit further to when they had a full head of hair of a different colour than what it is now. But the way we receive Christ, if that is supposed to be the way in which we continue to live in him, then it's probably helpful to, to remind ourselves how we receive Christ. 
The same author, Paul, as he's writing to the church in Rome, in chapter 3 of Romans, he says, As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. So how we came to trust in Christ as Lord wasn't because we were seeking after him. God says none of us naturally can do that within our own strength. It's not because we attained a certain level of of righteousness. In fact, twice in John chapter 6, Jesus says these things. In verse 44, he says, No one can come to the Father unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Then only a number of 11 verses later, he says, That's why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Now these two verses, they surround a time when Jesus is giving some hard teaching about what it means to be a follower of Christ. And some people respond and saying, who can hear this? And as we know, many of them turned away from Jesus and walked away at that time. And Jesus turned to his disciples and says, do you want to leave too? And how do they respond? Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. But the people who said, who can hear this? They understand that following Jesus is beyond human capacity to do so. Think of the words which Jesus spoke to Nicodemus. It says, unless you're born again, or unless you're born again by the Spirit, you cannot and you will not see or enter the kingdom of God. Or very simply put, receiving Christ is not our works, it's not our abilities, it's not our righteousness, it's not our worthiness. What we're told is it requires God to draw us to Christ. It requires God by his Spirit to regenerate us, to make us to be born again, to give us a new birth. Our salvation is made possible by what Christ has done on the cross, bearing our penalty for sin and, and his resurrection. What we contribute is we trust in what he has done. So the gospel doesn't really appeal to someone who is proud because the gospel proclaims, I can't, he can. And some of us don't like using the words, I can't. When I received Christ, I knew I had nothing and I knew that I desperately depended upon him for everything. I didn't come to God and say, I'll offer you this. I've got a fair bit to offer you here. You do the forgiveness bit. Oh, I can't. I'm pretty hopeless at the forgiveness stuff. I didn't offer him that. I says, I've got nothing to offer. Everything I need for salvation, only you can provide. I'm going to trust to receive what you have already done on my behalf. So if this is the manner that we're called to walk or live on a daily basis... How does that compare when we think about it? Now, I remember the early days when when I used to just think, I haven't got a clue. Teach me. Guide me. Enable me to live this life that you've called me to live. But is that how we think today? I think if we examine ourselves, we may find that we're a little bit guilty of getting to that point, like someone reading the instruction manuals, and starting to take credit 
a little bit for what God has done. We started with desperate dependence, but as we became familiar and we sort of felt like we'd gotten a bit of a swing of it, we might have started to think, hey, I've got, I've got the hang of this. I don't so desperately need God in all things. What we need today is exactly what we needed on that first day. That mindset of, I have nothing. I have nothing to offer in my strength and my power. I need you or I am useless. Or to quote Jesus himself, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, as an illustration as to what that looks like, let's see what he says in verse 7. After he says, as you receive Christ Jesus, Lord, so walk in him, he outlines what that looks like. Rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See, it speaks of two means. You are rooted and built up in him. Now, when you've got a plant, you get its roots into the soil so it can have access to the nutrients it needs to grow. In the same way, our growth only comes by our connectedness to the source of life, the Lord Jesus. Or to use Jesus' language of John chapter 15, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me is the one who will produce much fruit. It is only in connection with the life-giving vine, Jesus Christ, that we will indeed grow. Not a new concept. Our need and our dependence upon God for growth in all things is illustrated even in Psalm chapter 1. In verse 3 he says, He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, in all that he does he prospers. The point is, our growth, our flourishing depends upon our complete dependence upon God who is the source of all life and all goodness. Therefore, to be built up or to grow in him, we must first be rooted in him. We must first enter into that union with him that we call salvation. Just like salvation, faith is the means by which we establish that relationship. And Paul says, and continue just as you were taught. And thirdly, we're called to be abounding in thanksgiving, which makes sense. If it it says our salvation is completely the work of Christ that we just receive by faith, if our growth on an ongoing basis is the work of Christ, then as Paul says to the Corinthians, why do you boast as though you've received something? So you haven't received something, so you've done it yourself. If he is the one who has given all growth, then we should be abounding in thanksgiving because recognising that everything that is happening in our life is by his good and gracious provision. So how thankful are we? Now we often use the expression of giving thanks before a meal. Not a bad thing. It's, there's not a verse and chapter that says, before you eat your main meals, apparently breakfast doesn't count in some households, you must say grace. No, it doesn't. There's no command that says that, but it's a wonderful idea to think of. If I'm giving thanks to God for the, my most basic provisions for life, 
think the idea is that it should extend us to think, be thankful for God in all things. I don't think it was ever intended to be a means and an end of this is the only way in which you give thanks to God. But as we give thanks for him, basic, small, basic provisions, that we have a thankful heart in all things. Why? It's God's will. Paul says to the Thessalonians, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. In all circumstances, including 2021 circumstances, give thanks to God in all circumstances. Because we continue in utter dependence upon him. But Paul also warns them, be careful that no one takes you captive by empty and deceitful talk. He uses languages like as though someone is being carried away as a prisoner of war, taken away from Christ by something that might sound empty but plausible and compelling. And it is sad in Christian ministry how many Christians you see who get taken away captive led astray to pursue empty teachings because they seem new and exciting. People think, oh, I need something more. Even if that teaching might seem to be exciting, might even seem to be plausible to use the language of the scriptures. Paul kind of puts it together in place in verses 9 to 10. Where he says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and all authority. He says, all of the fullness of the deity dwells bodily in Christ. It doesn't say past tense. It doesn't say back in the day all the fullness of deity used to dwell in Christ bodily. It's present and it's ongoing And then it says, this one who's the fullness of the deity fills you. You have been filled in him who is the head of all rule, power and authority. If you are filled with the one who has all the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwelling within you, why would you look elsewhere? If Christ is the one who has all the fullness and all rule and authority, why would you look outside of Christ? Hence why when God, speaking of Jesus in Luke chapter 9, says, this is my son, this is my chosen one, listen to him. Because in Christ we have every spiritual blessing. In him we have everything we need for life and godliness. Not only is he above all, not only is he the fullness, and he lives and fills within his children, but he changes us. We are not the same. Now using the analogy of circumcision... Paul speaks about the believer's union with Christ in his death and resurrection. 
Now, in the Old Testament, being circumcised didn't make a person saved. Well, genetically, only 50% of people could get it done anyway. But it was meant to be a sign of a reality, of a, of a covenant relationship with God. It was never the means in the end of itself. Numerous times throughout the Old Testament, God is saying, I don't care about you doing a ritual. I want circumcision of your heart. I want a heart that is following and, and, and searching after me. That Old Testament ritual, just a small piece of skin was cut off. But Paul says here in Colossians, in Christ, the body is cut away. The old body of flesh is cut away, which is why Paul says to the Corinthians, you're a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. The old, by union with Christ, has been buried with him, but has also been raised victoriously with him in his resurrection. It's how Paul speaks again to the Romans church. It says, for if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall be certainly united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we've died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The only hope for the global problem of sin is that a substitute has died on your behalf. A perfect substitute, a God-man, Jesus Christ, on the cross. That's the only hope. It's the only name under heaven and earth by which any man can be saved. And we do nothing other than to receive what he has done through faith. The Bible's diagnosis isn't that we're spiritually sick. It is that we are spiritually dead that we have nothing to offer, nothing we can do. Yet through, by grace and through faith, in Christ we have everything that we need. So what will void the warranty of this gift? Now that's a question you often get. You, you open your Christmas presents, you're all excited about it, you've done something that you probably shouldn't have done, and you think, is my warranty gone? We've already seen our effort in salvation is a little bit kind of like a dead man trying to perform CPR on himself. God alone is the one capable of giving us the eternal life that we need. And by Jesus' death on the cross, which we've just heard is a death for sins once and for all, when we come to him in faith, our sins, past, present and future, have been dealt with in full. Now, we know the law convicts all of us guilty before God. Paul speaks about the, the Old Testament law as being like a schoolmaster, one that points us to the fact that shows us our guilt and points us to the fact that we need a saviour. 
As Paul speaks about how he, how he set it aside, he's not saying he doesn't value those same things. What he's saying is that we are not condemned or redeemed by the law, but we are condemned or redeemed by nature of our response and our connectedness to Jesus. One thing we see written about Satan in the scriptures, he's often called the accuser of the brethren. He might have even been on the, the, the receiving end of some of those accusations. Trying to place into your mind thoughts about you that you're not good enough for God. That, yeah, sure, God died on a cross, but not after what you did just then. You probably heard those thoughts. But as Jesus died on the cross, he paid in full for sin. Satan has lost his power. Sure, he can bring the accusations, but they don't stick. Jesus can just say, yeah, I know. Yeah, I know he did that. Did you see what I did to deal with that? Satan and all of his minions are now on death row. Paul says to the Colossians, he's made an open spectacle of them. I can imagine the Satan was probably thinking, man, between Judas and the cross, we got the win. Only to find out they were pawns doing nothing more than fulfilling the perfect will of God. And by Jesus going to the cross, even through these somewhat seemingly evil means, is the central heart of God's plan of redemption. Therefore, no power can undo what Christ has done. It would need to be a power that is greater than Christ himself. Or in the language of guarantees or warranties, it can't be voided. Our salvation started by him, continues in him, and is completed in him. We are called to walk in a daily manner with that same way in which we received him. I can't, you can complete dependence upon him. So how's it going? How do we receive Christ? Well, verse 6 says we receive Christ as Lord. Meaning we die to ourselves. My life is no longer about all about me, it's all about him. For those who it might have been quite some time since the time you first called upon him as Lord, let us have one look at a scriptural picture of how some Christians first received Christ as Lord. Reading from Acts chapter 19. Also many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burnt them inside of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. When these people came to Christ, they had no concern about the, the monetary value of things that they had. They said, if this is a hindrance to me walking with Christ on a daily basis, I'm happy to, to burn it, to get rid of it. Now, some of you might remember those days of enthusiasm where you thought, nothing, nothing was too much to get rid of. Does it still look that way? Or have we kind of become 
a little bit more comfortable with our sin, a little bit more comfortable with the fact that God is gracious and forgiving. To use the commonly used phrase in the news, the idea of living with COVID, then the idea, oh, so we think in our mind, oh, we're supposed to live with sin. And so we should just inevitably put up with the fact that we're going to keep sinning and not worry about it. We should worry about it. Not worry about it in the sense of it's going to come back to haunt us, to condemn us. But if we are glad that he died a death to set us free from sin, why would we want to continue in the thing that he came to die to set us free from? Did we start as the kind of person who thought, no, I need the the manufacturer's instructions. But now we're at that point where we think, ah, I've got a pretty good hang of this stuff. Just as we receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so we should continue to live in that same desperate dependence. Does that describe my daily reality? In him we come to faith. In him we grow. One waters, another one plants. He alone gives the growth. We want to be a people trusting Christ in all things. Happily letting go of anything that would be a hindrance. And praying for God's help to change us because we know how easily our own fleshly desires will lead us in the wrong direction. That we can pray, God strengthen me this day. So I can truly say, to live is Christ. That I can agree with Jesus that apart from him, I can do nothing. That in him is the source of everything we need for life and godliness. The one who has the fullness of the deity fills and dwells within us. Who wants to form in us and shape us to make us more like his son Jesus. Let's pray as we come before God. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the Christian walk is not about becoming more skillful. It's actually just recognising we're still desperate, beggars in need of your help. We thank you that the very same power that was able to pluck us out of the fires of hell, out of the, the grip of Satan, that was headed towards certain and guaranteed death, that same power that raised Christ from the dead dwells within us by your Holy Spirit. Thank you that you have a plan to complete that which you have begun within us. Lord, help us to examine ourselves as we think about how we trusted in you entirely for our salvation, that we would trust in you and your enabling for our daily walk, being rooted and grounded in him, growing and flourishing day by day, as your grace provides. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.